you please turn with me to your study outline uh, that's there in your program. And as you're turning to it, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as, uh, boy, it's always like one or two thousand that join us online every week. We're so glad that you're joining us as well, as well as our friends at the Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study uh, today. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to start a new series. We just finished our series, uh, Christmas series, King of Kings, and and then in two weeks, we're going to start our new series called What's Next that Daniel was just talking about. But the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be sharing a couple of uh, standalone messages. Uh, next Sunday, uh, I'll be giving a New Year's uh, message called Your Timing is Everything. And I'm really excited about this message. We're going to look at six areas that God wants us to move faster in uh, during the coming year, and then four areas where He wants us to move more slowly. That'll be next Sunday. We'll share the Lord's Supper together. What a great way to launch into the new year. Uh, but today, I want to talk about how to stay unified, especially during an election year. Uh, as we about to enter in to 2020, uh, an election year, how can we stay unified with our friends, our family, the people around us in, in different areas, but particularly uh, during an election year? Now, back on September 1st, if you look there in your program, you'll see that I preached a message that dealt specifically with how Christians handle uh, particular political issues. And you can see there in your study outline how to access that message. And by the way, today, if you've never registered to vote, uh, there's a chance to do that right in the middle of the lobby. They've actually got free constitutions for everybody that registers to vote. So I know you're going to run out in the middle of my message right now uh, to get that free copy. And so get that copy of the Constitution when you register to vote uh, right out there in the middle of our lobby. But today, I want to take a broader approach that applies not just to our political views, even though we're going to touch on that, but to all areas of our relationships. Uh, we're going to talk about listening to each other in all areas of life, in our friendships, in our marriage, um, in disputes we have with other people, in parent-child relationships, in the criminal justice system, and also in our political views as well. Now, we need to listen to each other because uh, things, uh, we need to communicate with each other and listen to each other because things are not always what they seem to be. Now, here's our big idea for the morning. Things are not always what they seem to be, so we need to communicate with each other until we understand where other people are coming from and why they do what they do or why they vote how they vote. Things are not always what they seem to be, so we need to communicate until we understand where other people are coming from and why they do what they do and why they vote uh, the way they vote. Uh, here's a great verse from the New Living Translation uh, that is especially for social media. And maybe you should post this verse right next to your computer, your phone, wherever you do uh, social media. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Let's, let's say this out loud together. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. So what I want to do for just a few minutes uh, before we have a panel discussion up here is to lay a biblical foundation for our discussion uh, by looking at an obscure story from the Old Testament, Joshua uh, chapter 22. Now here's a map that I want to put up there that will kind of give you the background to the story, but 
I think, and I need to be careful that I'm not stretching the Bible too far, but I think it's got some analogies for our situation in our country here today. Uh, What happened is when the nation of Israel came up on the promised land, uh, right at the Jordan River, um, two and a half tribes, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim were both half tribes, both from Joseph, so they were called half tribes. So Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they came to Moses, and they said, we love the farmland on the east side of the Jordan River. Could we settle here? And he says, okay, as long as you go with the other nine and a half tribes, help them to conquer their territory, then you can go back and take that land, but you got to help them first. So now we're ahead a few years uh, to Joshua 22, the end of Joshua's life, and Joshua comes to them and says, I know the deal you made with Moses, so you can go back now. You fulfilled your commitment to help them conquer their land. You go back, take your land, and we'll be on this side of, of the Jordan River. So now we pick up the story with verse 9. It says, So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh and Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses, the past deal with Moses. When they came to Galilath near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now, the altar, the only place they were supposed to offer up burnt offerings, was the altar at the tabernacle. But they built a replica of it there, right next to the Jordan River. And so everybody's like, okay, what's that all about? And you could either infer something good. Starley's going to talk about this in a few minutes. You could either just give them the benefit of the doubt and believe good things about that until convinced otherwise. Or you can jump to negative conclusions. When you see somebody do something, when you say, somebody, say something, you can jump to negative conclusions or you can give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay? So let's go on to verse 11. What did they do? Well, they did, they did not give them the benefit of the doubt. When the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galilath, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. See, they jumped to negative conclusions. They said, well, if they're building a replica altar, they must be doing it to show that they're starting a new nation and to show that they're worshiping a different God. That, 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 they jumped to that negative conclusion when they saw what they did. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They, they gathered together for war. They said, let's kill them all. And then one person kind of timidly raised their hand and said, Excuse me, but before we kill them all, maybe we should ask them why they built the altar. And and they were like, oh, there's an idea. There's an idea. And so with him, they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they they went to Gilead, to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him? Okay, they had no evidence for that. They just jumped to that negative conclusion that they built it in rebellion against the Lord. Uh, Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow, he'll be angry with the whole community. You're going to get us in trouble by your rebelliousness against God. 
If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land. Come back, you know, if, uh, to our side of the Jordan River, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. They're like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us today. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? We did it not in rebellion, but as a reminder to your descendants and our descendants that we are one nation, even though we're on, we are serving one God, even though we're on different sides of the Jordan River. The Lord has made a Jordan, a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. Their motivation was 180 degrees from what they thought it was. Verse 26, that is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priests, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they all went, oh, 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 never mind, never mind. I guess we won't kill you after all. They were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you've rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hands. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priests and the leaders, returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now, please don't get me wrong. There are very, very substantive issues that divide us as a nation. But there are, is maybe more that we have an agreement than we realize. Uh, could we, sorry, Pete, could we just go back to the map? I didn't, I didn't this is a curveball, but I want to go back to that map. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Isn't this interesting? And I want to be careful not to make the Bible say more than it should say, okay? But I find an interesting analogy here. There were certain tribes that were on the right side of the Jordan River, 
and certain tribes that were on the left side of the Jordan River, and they ran into a communication problem with each other. Does that remind you of any, any other nation? Uh, I was even thinking if I had had time, it was over Christmas breaks, so I didn't have time to do certain things, but of having Pete superimpose a red and blue map of the United States over this and say there are certain blue tribes, let me ask you a question, the same way there are certain tribes on either side of the Jordan that ran into communication problems, do you think there's ever blue tribes in the United States that have communication problems with the red tribes? And the red tribes have communication problems with the blue tribes. How many of you know fellow Christians that believe differently than you about the impeachment of President Trump? How, how many of you know that? Okay. Um, uh, let me give you a good initial exercise in trying to hear the reasons for people that have a different position than you do. And I, and I, have, I have a strong opinion on this, but it was very healthy for me to read some of the argumentation the reasons for those that had a different position than I did. Here's a couple of articles uh, to get you going. Um, the first one caused a lot of stir this past couple of weeks. From Christianity Today, Trump should be removed from office. We can obviously see where they stand on that issue right there in, in, in the headline. And so even if that is not your position, it's a healthy thing to read that position. And then a counter that was done to that in response to that, after somebody had read this article, then there's um, an article in the Christian Post, and I'm going to leave them up there for just a minute, jot these down real quick uh, so you can read them later on, in the Christian Post called, Why I Still Stand by Number 45, 45 being the 45th president, which is President Trump. So one, why he should be removed from office. One, why I still stand by him. And you could infer we'll vote for him again. You can infer from the top one, we'll not vote for him. So uh, two different positions. I have to admit, I read one and agreed with it more than I did when I read the other one. But it was still a healthy thing to understand the reasons that a fellow follower of Christ gave for having a different position than I had. Now, as we move into our panel discussion, well, let me introduce you to our panelists uh, today. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny. All three of them are, are, are lawyers, and I was thinking of starting with a lawyer joke. Um, but Jason came up with the idea, at least the starter of it, three lawyers and a pastor going to a bar. And so you guys can uh, write your own ending to that. Uh, this is Starla Anderson, and uh, you'll notice that um, we misspelled that in your program there. An attorney, A-T-T-O-U-R-N-E-Y, that's the French pronunciation of it, okay? An, an attorney, okay, is what she is. And uh, she's Associate Professor of Communication Studies with a postdoctorate Master of Law in Dispute Resolution. Oh, my goodness. How many of you would like to invite her to your home to work some things out? I would. And, you know, I always laugh. Sarah always teases me about this. I did the classic bait and switch on her. Because a few years ago, uh, she was our moderator, church moderator, for three years. And we were recruiting her for that position. She goes, well, what's involved in it? I said, oh, nothing. She, I, said, I said, you know, you basically once a year for the budget and election meeting, you, you come in, you start the meeting, we vote on the budget, you close the meeting. There's nothing to it. That her three years as she was our moderator were the years that we changed our name from First Baptist Pomona to uh, Purpose Church. And so that took a 
postdoctoral degree in dispute resolution to, you know, you really were God's person for such a time as this, and we do appreciate it. Uh, her husband is Jason Anderson. Uh, he is the district attorney for San Bernardino County. He's basically the head of the fifth biggest law firm in the country, and has had a tremendous first year, just a great opening year in that particular uh, position, and we appreciate you very much. And the, how many are in San Bernardino County? Let me see. How many of you are in San Bernardino County? Okay, you don't want to ever meet him probably. <laughs> as a, you know, That's probably not a good thing if you, if you do. And then one of my favorite people in the world, Kenny Schwartz, is my son-in-law, uh, married to our daughter, Abby. Uh, Kenny is an analyst with the United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and uh, if I could brag on my son-in-law for just a moment, uh, just recently uh, he was the recipient of the FBI Director's Award, which is one of the highest awards uh, from the FBI given to him by FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, for one of his investigations. And so we were very proud as a family to see him uh, get that award. So, all right. This is interesting, and, and this kind of has evolved in a different direction. You know, we kind of start out with politics, but then I think it's going to be way helpful beyond that as well, because Starla represents kind of just all the need for listening that we have in all of our relationships. And then, Jason, what more important area, and at times controversial area, than the different ways as a nation we look at the criminal justice system? I mean, that is a, that, that was a, Big, that's a big deal often. It can flare up at any moment, you know. Maybe it's good to talk about it when there isn't a big flare-up at the moment. You know, that, that's maybe a good time to have this discussion. Uh, and then Kenny, obviously, living inside the Beltway. What goes on in the zoo where you live, you know? And so we're going to be very interested in that. So I'm going to start with Starla and go boom, boom, boom. Okay, um, Starla, let me start with asking, how do you address the topic of listening uh, when you teach dispute resolution? One of my favorite quotes is by David Augsburger, and he says, the feeling of being heard is so close to the feeling of being loved that most people can't tell the difference between the two of them. So the ability for us to listen well to people is a free gift that we all can afford to give to one another if we are actively trying to do that well. And hearing sounds is not the same as listening. So you have to go above and beyond that. I've been reading a good book in one of my classes this semester called Upended, and it is following Jesus's communication style throughout his ministry. And in it, it says that one of the rarest commodities in our country today is the ability to find somebody to truly listen to people. We are in a self-disclosure kind of um, seeking kind of culture where people want to get their own affirmation in the things that they post. We don't typically strive toward other people and to get to know their stories and affirm their wealth, their dignity, and um, who they are. So I try to tell my students, and then one of the good quotes in that book is from the glittering top of the social pyramid all the way to the gritty basement, every human being is desiring sincere attention. And so I tell my students, let's do that by honoring people's stories. Let's seek out their experiences, the way Jesus sought out people, and get to know where they're, they're coming from. People's perceptions are their realities, and if we won't accept that, we will never understand people. 
So to go where they are, and what would it look like if all of us committed to saying, I want to enter into the presence of others this next year in 2020 with a deep curiosity and an awe and wonder of them as humans rather than with duty and obligation. So I try to foster that spirit in the classroom. Wow, that's, that's, you know, we talk about everyone's deserve, designed to serve, you know. And by the way, what I love about you guys is, you know, you're, you're serving in the choir. Jason is a Wana and a Wana listening to Bible verses every Wednesday night, you know, so cool. You have these high-powered positions, and yet you, you serve here at the church, everyone designed to serve. And, and, you know, that, I never thought about that. That's just, you don't have to sign up for anything, don't have to be a part. You just listen to people as a way to serve people in 2020. What a great ministry that is. Wow. Okay, let's move to criminal justice. Uh, Jason, how is listening important as it relates to the criminal justice system? The criminal justice system is really designed around an adversarial process to get to the truth. Uh, and within that, we often do that through trials. Uh, and within trials, you have two diametrically posed, uh, opposed uh, forces working towards figuring out what the truth is. Within that, one of the greatest tools in our criminal justice system in this country is cross-examination. And most people are familiar with that because if you watch TV or movies, there's always that gotcha moment where one of the attorneys asks a witness a question and everything's revealed. You know, we, we like that. That doesn't often happen in real life in the, in the courtroom. Uh, but nevertheless, that tool is what is wonderful about it. And throughout experience, the greatest tool of cross-examination is actually listening to what the witness says because it's only upon listening to that witness, can you then craft additional questions uh, or more questions to be able to get to the truth? Because in this zealous adversarial process of listening and questioning, do you find out what the truth would be? Now that witness's testimony may be consistent with the previous witness testimony. If you listen to the previous witness testimony and what the current witness is saying, uh, that's corroboration. Or it may be uh, in opposition to objective evidence or what other testimony you know to be true. But only if you listen uh, to that answer will you really be able to get to that truth. Uh, and that's one of the real cornerstones of our system of how we get to the truth. And so we teach uh, young lawyers, instead of worrying so much about the question you're going to ask, listen to what the witness says, because they're generally going to drop what we would call a kind of a golden nugget of being able to follow up on that. Uh, and get to the truth. One of the quotes that I like is, is from John Milton, and he says, if you allow truth and falsehood to grapple in an open field, truth will always prevail. Wow. And so the process of cross-examination and trial is like that grappling, and part of that grappling is not only questioning, but in my opinion, much more important in terms of listening to get to the truth so that we can ensure that there's justice uh, within our system. I love that quote. So if you can just get truth and air on an open field. That's the key. There's so much bias in perspectives and when it's shared to us, but if you can just get them on an open field, truth will, will win that. Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, Kenny, okay, you moved to the Beltway. Um, um, that's the nice term for it. You call it the swamp, right? Or the swamp, You, you became yeah. a swamp creature, yes, yeah, 15 years ago. They haven't drained me yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and then about Half of that time, you were in the legislative branch, on the staff, uh, like Abby has been for most of her time, on the staff of a congressman from New Mexico, and then a congressman from Nebraska, I believe. But now you've moved to the executive branch, to the Justice Department. Well, here, here's my basic question, because everybody's always asking, what's it like there? You know, ask your kids, you know, what, what is it like yeah. to, to live there? And um, 
Have you become more partisan or less partisan since moving to Washington, D.C. 15 years ago? Well, thankfully, uh, I've become less partisan. I say that because it's illegal for me to be outwardly partisan. In fact, if I was the same as I was when I first moved there, Jason could arrest me and have me prosecuted. So <laughs> that would not be a fun end to, to this decade, I don't think. Yeah, you mentioned the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act, yes. I never got back to that. Yeah. What is the Hatch Act? So the Hatch Act is, is a term that uh, is increasingly thrown around uh, on the news. Uh, but for people that are on um, specific agencies or work for within a specific realm like the intelligence community or other areas like that, uh, we're privy to information that the general public doesn't always get. And so by virtue of that, if I were to go out and advocate for a candidate like I used to do when I, when I first came to D.C., people could infer from that that I'm using my insider knowledge to bolster that candidate up, and it simply wouldn't uh, be fair uh, if people weren't subject to all the facts. And, and so even if I wasn't trying to apply that, the, you know, people could interpret it that way. And uh, so that wouldn't, that wouldn't be fair for anybody. Um, so therefore, there's some strict prohibitions on things that I can and can't say, um, even in my off time, even when I'm off duty. Wow. So, so I cut you off, but as far as you become less partisan, you think, over time. Oh, absolutely. But you, but you had to because you moved to the Justice Department. Right, yeah, there's two different roles. Essentially, when I first came in as a congressional staffer, you're there to, to motivate the, uh, the uh, aspirations of the person that you're working for. So if you're in the majority uh, of Congress, meaning the, the, the people that, a, right, the that people are in power. That are in power, that are controlling the chamber, especially in the House of Representatives, it's all majority driven. So whoever has the most seats controls the power. Um, so in that case, you're really trying to, to help your boss push a policy objective and make your objective become law. If you're on the opposite side, it can be still be a little bit of fun, but you're throwing bombs and trying to make that person seem as demonic and, and awful as possible. Um, as far as the overall agenda goes, so what a, what a beautiful thing it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so it's, it's very different when you do make it a move to a career position, which is what I'm in now. I'm I'm independent of whoever is controlling the White House. The president is still our boss, but we're not Obama people. We're not Trump people. We're not Bush people. We are people that are career employees of the of the Department of Justice, which means. You know, if somebody comes in in another four or eight years, um, that we're still under that hierarchy, and we are beholden to the Constitution and making the government uh, work and making our country as, as safe as we can within that realm. Um, and so within that capacity, there's been people that have uh, preceded me in my role. There's been people that will be there after me, that will be there after I ultimately retire. And they're going to come from all kinds of different stripes, different ethnicities, different, uh, you know, affluency, I guess, and uh, different orientations. And it's up to us as career government servants uh, to see past our differences and unite behind a common goal of making our country a better place to be. Okay, now let me come back down this way. It's just, I'll do a, a follow-up question uh, to you. What are some of the tools you use to get beyond partisanship or that we could even use as well? So I have absolutely evolved on the, on the tools I've, I've utilized for these purposes. Uh, I used to always recommend that people on, that are divided between conservative or, and liberal spend at least one month you know, watching exclusively the cable news channel of the opposite party. Um, oh, man. Which sounds, yeah. <laughs> sounds awful. You might as well tell your kid to eat spinach for, for a day or something like that. 
Um, but now I think increasingly, you know, some of the vitriol has crept into the cable news programs or on both sides, uh, where, you know, I think ultimately that would not be uh, a great way to go. It may just make you angry and start your day and off in a furious mood, especially if you're in San Bernardino County, then you might uh, uh, cause some problems that Jason would have to deal with. So that's, we want to save, save your workload. Um, but um, now I think, you know, I, I would really uh, suggest utilizing some of the um, techniques that both Starla and Jason were talking about of really emphasizing listening. Um, one of my favorite comedians always says, you know, it's, it's such a foreign concept that people uh, listen instead of talk. In fact, in most conversations, you're waiting for the person's lips to stop moving before you can get up there and jump in with a comment. And I think as one of your, uh, your kind ushers said, you know, there's often... Um, so many people that will rush up and, and be quick to see where you stand and then uh, be like, oh, well, you must be a racist or you must be, uh, you know, a classist or, or something like that or any kind of phobia that you can throw at them. We really want to try to get beyond that. And I think listening is key. And I think especially, you know, if you can hone in on your personal relationships uh, to make uh, listening happen so you can understand the rationale of somebody that might think differently from you. You know, while we're not able to openly express our partisanship, it's, it's fairly easy to understand where some people that are close to you, that work in your close orbit, uh, lie ideologically. And so one of the things that I've done is I've gone out uh, to coffee with some of my coworkers that I know believe 180 degrees differently from me on most of the key issues of the day. And we'll sit and we'll have a coffee with the rules of, hey, look, we're not going to get offended during this conversation. We just want to be able to talk things out. I want to say what I can say you know, in a way that makes sense to me and hear your perspective. And I think by the end of the day, you know, you, you may not ultimately agree with that person, but at least you can see them as a rational human being rather than a uh, demonic other, uh, so to speak. And, um, you know, I think all of us from our law backgrounds are familiar with uh, the Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And one of the things that he said very poignantly was, uh, a mind stretched by a different idea never returns back to its original shape. Uh, and I think that has been true for me and the people that I've contacted that have expressed different views from me and believe differently from me is I've been able to take a lot of their ideas and I don't think I've ever gone back to you know being as stringently uh, uh, centered or cemented in my original belief. Wow. And Starla, you have a great Abraham Lincoln quote on that, don't you? Yes. There's, there's the Bible, then there's Abraham Lincoln quotes, and then there's everything else. He's hanging in our yeah, living yeah, yeah, yeah. room. We love him. <laughs> yes, he said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. That's great. I don't know him, so I need to get to know him better. That's not usually my first response. That's, that's that, man. Good deal. Uh, okay, Jason, how do you have to listen to others in the criminal justice system when it all seems set up? for prosecution and defense are always in opposition to each other. How does that work? That happens often because that is a way to forge the truth. There's diametrically opposed sides. I talked about that a little bit earlier. But then there's also times in the system where uh, two people that uh, would be on opposite sides have a common goal, uh, and we come together and we listen sometimes to see if there's a way that we can do what's best for the community. And oftentimes what you see this in, in the criminal justice system is when people have addiction, criminal de uh, chemical dependency, uh, or mental health issues that are the origin of a crime, if you can seek out and cure the origin of what's causing that crime to be committed, 
then that person won't commit that crime again, and it reduces recidivism. So all, all, overall, that makes uh, society a much safer place. And so there are those areas in which the defense and the prosecution uh, will try to uh, put a process in place where we can identify those instances in which we can address the real origin of the crime, right? Not just an evil heart, but an actual trigger as a result of addiction or mental health issue, address that so that that person never comes back to the system. So there's opportunities for two people that are typically diametrically opposed to actually come together and have a common goal. Wow. And, and you know, just to brag on you guys a little bit, um, Tomiko, Pastor Tomiko with the Justice Ministry here has done that some with human trafficking where they're working with law enforcement to have alternative sentencing and, and, and that kind of thing. And by the way, uh, you all did this through your giving, your faithful giving. I just got a chance to tour our Justice Center over here yesterday. It's gorgeous. You can't believe what they've done with that building. All right. It's just like, wow. And so you guys are a part of that, of making that happen, which is where you come together. And for example, I think in human trafficking, not necessarily sentencing jail time, but other programs that would get them out of that. Talking so. about the victim on that, obviously. Yes, You're yes. dealing with the victim where yes, the victim so, at the I'm same sorry. time yeah. is also a suspect because they're engaged in illegal activity, but yeah. ultimately what the deal is is the, the lifestyle is such that that's all they have to rely upon, and that's why they call it slavery and human trafficking. Yeah, right. certainly right. different than the main offender. Wow. All right. Uh, Starla, what theories help you equip students to listen well? One of my favorite theories is the attribution theory, and attributions are understandable because we have a lot of stimuli coming at us every day, and we need to kind of put them in categories to be sane. So our human nature, our fallen human nature, when we experience something, we often give it uh, we attribute a character flaw to the other person. So we call these attribution errors, and these are what lead to conflict. For example, if I'm out in the parking lot and somebody says hi to me, but the sun is in my eyes and I was listening to my ear pods that you couldn't see, you would walk away from that experience and say, rude, and you would treat me accordingly, right? You would just not engage with me again, However, if you would have had a clarifying conversation with me, you would have realized, oh, I couldn't hear you because I had earpods in, and I didn't see you because the sun was in my eyes and I wasn't wearing sunglasses. I am so sorry. I did not mean to ignore you, and we could go on with our relationship. So you can see how this very easily creates a divide between people. So when we mess up, we then say, well, it wasn't my bad character that caused me to act that way. It was all these outside factors that I couldn't control. When I do well, I say, oh, it's my internal good qualities that caused me to succeed. When you do well, we often say, oh, he was in the right place at the right time. So we are very gracious to ourselves. We are very hard on other people. And I love this theory for students because I tell them this is the flashing yellow in your life. When you encounter unexpected experiences, instead of quickly judging and acting on that judgment, think of something that you yourself would have maybe had going on that could have caused you to act in the same way the other person did. Have a charitable judgment first, going into a clarifying conversation, and then potentially you could avoid a lot of apologies and broken relationships. The other thing I really like is having a learning conversation rather than information exchanges where you're just telling each other what you're thinking. A learning conversation by Stone, Patton, and Heen says, listen long enough until you're able to articulate the other person's perspective. 
Only then do you get your shot at it. That will save you from a lot. Well, first of all, it's efficient use of time. I've saved a lot of time with this technique. And then also, you don't have to apologize as often because you've waited to totally understand the other person before you stick your foot in your mouth. Wow. That could like work in marriage and stuff, right? Yeah, it could, yeah. <laughs> huh, all right, very, very good. Okay, let me, let me do a follow-up to you and then we'll go back down through here. Okay, um, third question to you, Starla. Do you have any listening success stories? Uh, yes, so each semester, each of my students pick a relationship they'd like to work on and mother-daughter conflict is a very popular choice. So one of these... <laughs> college mother-daughter. College mother-daughter. It's that awkward stage of I'm no longer your parent, I'm supposed to transition to your friend, but I'm not quite sure when I'm supposed to be that versus the other. Okay. And so from the student's perspective, it was very demeaning, disrespectful, irritating, frustrating when her mother did not get it. And so she went through this whole experience and, and I have them write the paper from a neutral perspective so that the person reading the paper couldn't tell if it was the mother or the daughter who wrote the paper. They have to be that gracious to walk in the other person's shoes. So she wrote her whole paper, began to see some of the perspective of her mother, and then sat down with her mother before she came up with the recommendation section to say, how could we do this better after I have walked in your shoes? And it was a very simple thing. Unspoken expectations are devastating to relationships. And that's what was going on in that situation. So they came up with a simple question. Do you want me to listen to you during this conversation as your mother or your friend today? And it totally transformed the relationship. Oh, wow. So the frustration was replaced with deep understanding and respect. Wow. And they could give each other what they needed. Wow. Wow. Can I wow. give you one more amazing sure, one? Sure, sure. It's good okay. stuff. <laughs> so it was a workplace conversation, and there was a project, group project, that we we're all working on, and it was not going well. One person in particular just had a really difficult time with what the rest of the group wanted to do. So I asked the, the chair of this committee if I could have a moment to just work on this and see what could, I could come up with. So I listened to the other person who was having a difficult time for 45 minutes, and it was all about a promotional piece of how to promote a conference. So it really was not earth shattering, but I needed to understand why the group's idea was not acceptable. So we listened, I listened to what the other ideas were and I kept trying to integrate them into the original idea. At the end of the 45 minutes, this person said to me, you know what, you do whatever you think is best. I trust you. I just, I, now that you've listened to me, I'm okay with whatever you decide. So it didn't take a change. We didn't have to change a thing. She or this person did not feel like they were valued in the process. Wow. And so I think there are process goals and there are content goals in conflict. And if you engage a process in a way that brings everybody in, you can get to the end without as much conflict versus, you know, just trying to push your agenda forward on your own because you know it's the best idea. Can we audit your class? Yeah, how many want to take Starless class? Okay. Uh, Jason, why is it important to listen to the community and their thoughts and concern about the criminal justice system? Because, wow, I mean, it's not politics. Yeah, it is politics, man. Criminal justice system, that, that divides people almost as much as politics does. Yeah. 
It does. The, the community is ultimately our customer. I mean, we have an obligation to make sure the community is safe, that we think of better ways to administer the system and to make sure there is equal justice for all. Uh, one of the things that's always concerned me about the justice system is from an outsider standpoint, people are very result-oriented. They either like a result or they don't like a result. They either like the fact that somebody got convicted or somebody got acquitted. They like the fact that somebody got charged with a crime or they didn't get charged with a crime. They like the fact that somebody made a determination in an officer-involved shooting or a, a use of force issue that the officer was charged with a crime or not charged with a crime. Uh, and so uh, it's frustrating that there's not a discussion about the process that leads to these things. One of the things that we've done in the county is we established a community commission where the five district supervisors in San Bernardino selected up to three people to sit on this commission. Uh, and so that way I could explain the process, but more importantly, members of the community could examine the process, ask questions about the process, and then give input about the process. And what's been great about having others select the makeup of the commission, and we meet uh, four times a year, we've met twice in my first year, um, and we do it for over five hours. We talk about all these issues, is that what's been amazing to see is the ability for people of different backgrounds to give input in, a, in, a, in an environment where they're very free to express themselves mm. and everybody listens mm. and nobody judges and not everybody agrees, but we always know that we have the opportunity next time we come back to continue the conversation, wow. which is wonderful. And what's been neat is that generally the underprivileged communities within the criminal justice system tend to be minor, minority communities, either African-American or Hispanic uh, communities, uh, at least in, as it relates to San Bernardino County. The majority of commission members that we meet with are either women, African-Americans, or Hispanics. Uh, and so it's nice to have people who typically would have a different experience in the justice system than, say, all four of us would have, uh, to be able to have them understand the process, but more importantly, give us feedback from a viewpoint that I wouldn't necessarily have and wouldn't be able to have any ownership of it if I even expressed that I did. And that's the beauty of it. And we don't always agree, but it's that opportunity to keep that conversation going, which I don't think really has been present uh, at a local level in the criminal justice system. So that's the benefit of listening to the community and providing an opportunity. Give us hope at the end here, Kenny. Um, give, us, give us some examples of partisan people in the Beltway, in Washington, D.C., um, getting along with each other. That's a tough one. I didn't know if there was going to be a <laughs> pop quiz. Can I phone a friend or something? Um, I'm giving you a week to come up with, yeah, with yeah. two. With two. Yeah. I appreciate it. No, one that um, immediately comes to mind is is that there is a lot of um, harmony, I guess, on the on the staffer level, which is you know beyond the cameras and uh, somewhat in the background of what you normally see generated out of Washington. Uh, one of the things is uh, one of the examples that comes to mind is one that uh, my wife just recently experienced. Uh, Abby is, um, as some of you may know, is uh, the legislative. Uh, director for uh, Secretary Ben Carson of the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington, D.C. Uh, these secretaries often have to go up to Capitol Hill uh, for a series of congressional hearings, and while they're on there, uh, the uh, party out of power from the White House usually just peppers them with questions, tries to make them seem as ineffectual as possible. Uh, and one of those people that was up on the stage, uh, up on the dais, rather, that was uh, grilling uh, Secretary Carson uh, just really took him to town, just gave him a whole bunch of hard questions and really, you know, made his life miserable for lack of a better term. But the next day, um, one of the interesting things is that uh, that congresswoman's legislative director has a child 
that goes to one of the local daycares with uh, with our daughter Avonlea, um, and this daycare usually has people of both stripes, you know, political Republican Democrat that go there, and even some members of Congress send their kids there. But anyway, uh, Avonlea and uh, this woman's uh, daughter were on a field trip together, together, and they were hugging each other and playing and having a great time. So this legislative director who was, uh, you know, on the polar opposite from Abby was texting messages of our kids together and, oh, aren't they sweet and cute and everything. <laughs> so really, there, if you... And she and Abby had just been arch enemies. Yeah, anywhere, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there is, you know, elements that you guys can, you know, that uh, people can unite behind. And in this case, it's kids for us. Um, so that makes it uh, makes a lot of fun. You know, the other thing, and you'll have to tell me, your dad's going to be at the next service. Yeah. Yeah. So if I can, maybe I'm going to get in trouble here. But your dad is, I think it's okay to say he's committed Republican. Okay, yeah, okay, think, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I think that's So that's he has this knack for running into people <laughs> yeah. that are superstars from the Democrats. Right. So he's on the golf course in Newport Beach, and he's hanging with Bill Clinton. And we get these <laughs> pictures of him and Bill Clinton. Then, right in the middle of the impeachment, your dad flew cross-country next to Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) And he's got a picture of Nancy Pelosi, and here's your dad and Nancy chatting it up for 3,000 miles from D.C. uh, to San Francisco. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. Well, it's great, you know, because there's so many people on on the Democratic Party that would love to get these pictures, and he's like, ah, I have to sit next to Nancy Pelosi or something. (laughs) She was very nice. Very very nice. He's had she a was. great, great she time, was. yeah. And then I love the story where Abby, oh, you know what? I'm not going to, I shouldn't tell this. Okay, <laughs> we, we need to get done here. All right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Worship team sitting over there. Worship team, will you come up while I tell one final story, which should give you about a half an hour to get into yeah. position. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> What's that? What's that? I am worse than a lawyer. Yeah, who talks longer, a lawyer or a pastor? There's a, yeah. Oh, are you kidding me? You dissed me in my house. It's a good crowd here, Glenn. It's a good crowd. In my house. I don't come to your courtroom and say that. <laughs> anyway, I will be quick. But there's this other story from the, it's the House of Representatives Daycare Center where they're all hanging out together. And Abby was on a field trip about two weeks ago, right in the middle of the impeachment hearings. I'd never get that right, right? The hearings. Is yeah, the term? hearings. Okay, right. So, uh, and here's a dad with his little girl on the field trip, and he was the main Republican interrogator. Counselor, yeah. Counselor, okay. Firing the questions at, at the Democrats. And here's a mom with her little boy, and she's in the process of writing the articles of impeachment. And here they're all together on the field trip, uh, mom and dad and kids. You know, the Bible says a little child shall lead them, (laughs) and uh, and, uh, maybe that's the truth for us as well. Uh, Some people say there's only children in D.C., but, you know, if we had more, then we'd all come together. So... All right, let's stand and show our appreciation to our panel and let them know that we're very, very, very grateful for what they did. All right, let's remain standing and let's worship a little bit before we get out of here.